Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a really fun discussion with Dr. Terry Gossard, who is uh, currently on the AOA Board of Trustees, and also she had a one-year term, so she is running for re-election in 2020. We, we were able to talk about, obviously, the AOA board. We were able to talk about AOA issues, but what was really fun was to talk to her about uh, community-based healthcare systems where optometry can not only play a role, but can be the driving force behind the development of those systems. Uh, that was, that was um, really illuminating to me. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and enjoy our conversation. I'm excited to be able to sit down with you and kind of talk about your experience from an AOA Board of Trustees standpoint so far. So you're how many months into your first term? I was inaugurated at optometry's meeting in June. Okay. So here we are in September. Yep. So, and yep. so does it go straight from when you are inaugurated and then you start right yeah, away? Yeah, actually there's a mini board meeting right after the House of Delegates closes. So yeah, you drink from the fire hose immediately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, then you took a position that's basically a one-year mm -hmm. board position. Mm -hmm. So now um, you've got to run again. Right. And uh, kind of tell me about what you do when you're when you're trying to run for the AOA board. What mm -hmm. your if we take a little step back because I know you're running again, but what's your kind of motivation? What's your goals for the AOA yeah. and and those sorts of things? Yeah. Well, I think best to explain my goals. Maybe I would start just by giving you my career path. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so. I'm a 1996 graduate of the Ohio State University College of Optometry. My undergraduate education is actually in education. I um, have a teaching certificate, taught seventh grade science, um, got scared straight, and went to optometry school. It was student teaching, not, not actually teaching, but nonetheless. Um, and that, that came into play later in my career arc um, in that um, for the first three years out of optometry school, I moved to Cincinnati. My husband was finishing his medical education. He's a primary care physician. Okay. And I worked in a corporate setting in a lens crafters in Cincinnati for three years. And then when he matched and we knew we were in Cincinnati for uh, the long haul, um, I accepted a position with a multidisciplinary practice um, called at the time Eye Care Associates of Greater Cincinnati, now Apex Eye. Um, so I, they changed because they, is that where you still practice? Um, actually, no, but okay. they, well, it's funny. I, it circles back. Actually, I am associated with them um, in, a, in a certain respect, but um, the they changed certainly because they were growing. Um, when I joined, there was one myself as the lone optometrist and seven general ophthalmologists. And by the time after 17 years had gone by, uh, they became uh, myself, two other optometrists, um, those same seven ophthalmologists, but now uh, a host of specialty yeah. care ophthalmologists. That's kind of, I mean, it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm sure you and Terry Geist have a, a, a highly similar, mm -hmm. you know, well, you do have a similar background in, in that respect. Terry right. was obviously like the first optometrist that they brought on with her group. Right, right. And uh, so I'm sure you have a lot in common. You, you can have some, share some perspectives yeah. that way. We have a lot in common. We um, both are called Terry, both Terry G. Yes, we do have a lot in common. Yes. Yeah, true. <laughs> but no, um, certainly the um, those 17 years um, were really um, valuable to me as far as developing my clinical acumen. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you are an optometrist, especially the first optometrist in a practice, you want to make sure that you don't mess things up and yeah. you want to make sure you're representing optometry well. Um, you 
pretty much practice like you're on a desert island. You're like, I have to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I've been trained to fix this. Um, but I think initially that's kind of hard um, for uh, any graduate to realize that, hey, I can do this. Yeah. Um, so it was sink or swim, but in a good way, yeah. in a good way. Do you feel like in that time there was sort of, was there any other um, thing that you were concerned about, not just from being the first optometrist in the group, but also being a woman? Did that come into it at all? Um, I don't think that the gender, although there, I really was the first woman, they were all male oh, ophthalmologists, were, yeah. yes. Um, but I think, you know, it was the blessing and the curse to be the first optometrist because they didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. But then I got to, you know, say, hey, this is what I want to do. So I did not want to be a uh, glorified technician. Yeah. I wanted to carry my own schedule um, and be involved in the secondary care that I could give in addition to the primary care. So um, I essentially manned the offices when the ophthalmologists were in the OR, right. which makes sense. Um, right. It made sense for them from a business model. Um, they didn't want to pay their staff and to not having patients coming through. And also a, a patient continuity. Um, they wanted to make sure they got the care that they needed and didn't have to wait till the next day or come, up, come after the OR. So really good fit. Um, and access to all sorts of technology. Um, being able to pick the brains of the specialists that were there, um, retinal specialists, um, yeah, you know, the gamut, you know, yes. the, uh, as far as the portfolio goes. So 17 years with that. Um, midway through that, my children were born. So I had a daughter and then a son, 15 months apart. We really, yeah, that, that was boot camp there for a while, although I feel silly talking about that with you. No, that's all right. No, don't feel silly. Because no. <laughs> I, no. I think you've got me by a few children. But nonetheless, um, so um, when they were born, I went part-time, and it was wonderful, um, and it was a great experience to be able to spend that time. But then when my youngest got into kindergarten, I thought, hmm, I want to be doing more. And so that is when I ran for the Ohio Optometric Association Board of Trustees um, and spent nine years working through the chairs, was president um, in 2015. But, you know, and it did... I have a lot of fun stories to tell from the yeah. OOA perspective and then the legislative things we were able to accomplish. Um, but probably the cornerstone or my capstone experience on the on the board was actually parlaying my undergraduate degree in education along with my optometric degree and helping to found the first self-sustaining school-based health center um, at Euler School. So this is a brick-and-mortar facility um, in a school of Cincinnati Public. Uh, we have now two full-time optometrists, a um, extern from the Ohio State University College of Optometry, two opticians, and they're seeing roughly 5,500 comprehensive eye exams every year. Wow. And that's, keep in mind, a school year. So yeah. it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, actually opened a second uh, location within Cincinnati Public as well. So now we actually have two um, eye clinics and really um, am thrilled to see the impact that that's making on Cincinnati Public School kids. What um, so one of the things that I would that I would wonder about would be the doctors who practice in Cincinnati already. <laughs> do they view that as competition? What like how do they how do they understand that relationship? It's a good question, and that was actually a lot of the messaging initially because there was some angst about that, mm -hmm. um, especially when the OOA um, is behind this. You yeah. know, what is our, our state association doing? My answer to them was very simple. These children do not have eye care. Right. They're just um, not having access. They, they, are, they have no access. And um, Cincinnati, unfortunately, has the second highest childhood poverty rate in the mm -hmm. country. 
Um, so in the school of, of Euler where this uh, clinic is housed, 94% of them qualify for free and reduced lunch. So this is a, um, a very uh, underserved population. Yeah. There's not always transportation to a Medicaid provider. Um, there is, um, if there is, it might not be um, inimitable to a working parent's hours or a single parent. Um, they might not have lunch that day. They might not have a shoe. They might not have a bed. They're sleeping on their hands' right. couch. So the access piece um, of delivering eye care within the school really solves a lot of those problems. So no, we were not taking patients from um, doctors. Do they realize that now? I mean, yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I have to tell you, you know, so in Ohio, we divide our societies into zones and zone eight, Cincinnati zone has been a huge supporter of the yeah. facility, um, both financially and with even volunteer effort when we needed some some work being done. So no, it's, it's definitely recognized um, as, as a as a valuable tool. And then we have partners, so if they need um, maybe some services that we can't provide um, within the school-based health center, we can refer them out. Do you, um, so then who funds a facility like that? It's a really good question. So it's self-sustaining, right? Okay. And that's the, that's the thing that's so exciting. And actually I served for several years on the health center committee here within the AOA um, because of my work at Euler. It is a federally qualified health center Look-alike, so it's like a community health center. Exactly. So, um, so it's a not-for-profit. Correct. Um, so, well, or it's a non-profit. Actually, no. Oh, they can, they, they can, can make okay. they can make money. So here's here's what the FQHC um, does. So, for instance, if I was a an optometrist practicing in Cincinnati outside of this model, um, I'm just going to make up some numbers. Let's say that the reimbursement might be $35 for a comprehensive okay. eye exam and maybe $10 for the glasses dispensed. Okay. So we still bill that under the FQHC model, but we're also eligible for RAP money. Cool. So I'm going to have you slow down. So FQHC is? Federally Qualified Health Center. Okay. So a health center, like a community health yep. center, what you're talking about. Okay. And then the RAP? The RAP rate, so if you think back to that $35 or $10, yep. Um, every time we see a patient for any type of encounter, we get reimbursed up to, and it depends on this facility, but at Euler, $86 per encounter. And that comes from being a? FQHC. So if you're an FQHC, you get the standard reimbursement. Mm -hmm. But because you tend not to have the ability to have private payers as much or other, gen or other sources of income, uh, because as an FQHC, are you just seeing, are you limited to seeing Medicare and Medicaid, or can you see anybody that has No, as insurance? a matter of fact, as, a, as an FQHC, that's part of the idea, is you will see anyone, um, so there are so not barriers. insured or no, yes. not insured, and that's where that extra $85 is right. supposed to cover that cost. Right. Well, it's the carrot that the federal government holds out to get healthcare providers into underserved areas okay. and populations. And, and in your experience, is that... Um, is that pretty much across the country? or Well, federally qualified health centers um, were actually started in the Kennedy era. So this is, um, but it's, it's not as, um, yes. So yes, they're across the country. Um, but if you've seen one health center, you've seen one health right. center. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, state and local variances depending on how they are governed and, and the reimbursement rates. But the intent is yes. roughly the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's so I, I interrupted you, but I just wanted to clarify some sure. things. So then, then they would also get that that extra piece for those same patients. Oh sure. So glasses dispense, um, you know, conjunctivitis, 
vision therapy visit, you know, that all will bump up to that $86. So you can see how then that is a sustainable model. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a lot of certainly funding and, and, you know, the AOA was part of that. That was a Healthy Eyes, Healthy Children grant, um, as well as a lot of fundraising. Um, and we had ophthalmology on board. That's the neat thing about this. And I think it's germane to um, why the AOA and why I'm so passionate about being an affiliated member and, and that this is critical is because we managed to find a situation where people that don't normally play in the same sandbox yep. realize, hey, this is low-lying fruit. This is easy. We should be able to get this done. So it was children's hospital, ophthalmology, opticians, um, the city government, because the uh, city, uh, the health department of Cincinnati actually is the owner of the FQHCs. Um, and it and I had to do a lot of heavy lifting as far as in the legislature, um, making mm -hmm. sure that um, both the local and state um, governance understands. And it's quite frankly a model that's been visited visited by delegations from all across the country. So is that where you practice now? So I'm the PRN doctor. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you're right. So I've kind of stopped my career arc. So um, let me catch you up to that. So as, no, no. Actually, I think okay. this is great because okay. I think it, it's. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to deviate too much sure. from that because I think it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so, how do you how do you view that that model? So you're saying other states are coming in looking at that model. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be your goal to try to spread that beyond the borders of Ohio and be able to implement that in different places? Because it is interesting to me that um, I've been kind of hypercritical as a as a fellow of the academy. I've been hypercritical of. Uh, the current leadership of the academy in some of the what seems to be a um, a complete blind spot for the historical aspects of why our profession is allowed to do the things our profession can do mm -hmm. and the assumption that if we just stop with um, moving forward in some of our scope of practice that our opposition would would stop and so the you know in terms of children's vision I, I think that we've got, uh, from a legislative standpoint, we have never had, I mean, and I can tell you from an SGRC standpoint, over the last two years, I see every single children's vision um, piece of legislation that comes in, and ophthalmology and medicine have never supported that. So in your experience, and they've never, and, and you could say, well, of course they would be on the same side, right? But they are just not. And so there's something different about this that they are supportive of, which is comprehensive I care. Mm -hmm. And they don't view that as letting um, somebody else besides the pediatrician have, you know, have control of that population. So what is that? Why, why is that the case in your, in your perspective? Why did it work in Cincinnati? No, no. Why would, well, yes, specifically in Cincinnati, but why would you expect it to also work other places? Because I, I do think that's the case. But why is it different than when it's a legislative comprehensive eye care, what's good for the the gander or the goose, right. Right, right, is also good for the gander? Right. Well, I think in today's political climate, anytime you talk about a health care mandate, you're at risk for failure. Um, and, and unfortunately, even though this is common sense, you know, a child needs to see clearly and comfortably in order to be able to learn, it, the, fun, the fundraising for this was so simple. I mean, people get it. Of course. You yeah. know, they totally get it. Um, so, and that, quite frankly, is... Um, one of the things I really like to do, um, you know, Martin Luther King has a quote, that, and I'll butcher it, but my, my working <laughs> knowledge of it is um, leaders don't find consensus, they drive consensus. And I think it was 
in this scenario a situation where you could get people across from each other and say, hey, listen, yeah. these kids need this. Um, we're not taking them from other providers. They don't have access. We're spending, from an education point, a lot of money on special education yeah. dollars for kids that, quite frankly, just can't focus on the page. Yeah. Um, and that's not the cure for all any kind of uh, special education needs. But, it, boy, it's a big part of it. We know there's visual impairment in that population, and it's not being addressed. Yep. It's interesting. I was um, in the director of Medicaid's office um, during this, and he was an interesting character. And he, you know, looked at me and he says, "You know, Children's Hospital says they can handle all these these children." And I didn't know him that well at the time, right. and I just kind of started sputtering in. But that, that's not true, Dan. And he just got a big smile on his face and he said, "Oh, I know that's not true. <laughs> that's just what they tell me." Right. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I think. It's getting in front of the right people, yeah. telling the message, keeping it simple. And, and quite frankly, as a board member, that's what I like to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, we're often side, times on the side of the angels, right? Yeah. We're, we're advocating for patient right. care. We're advocating for access. And we're arguing on the side of the patient. And if you can message your legislative effort that way, if you can message your project, um, in this case, um, that way, you help drive that consensus and make it feel like I can't say no to this. Yeah. And so, but but that's a heavy lift yeah. because we've got decades and decades of decades of not quite getting this right. Right. And we've lost the battle a mm. lot when it comes to eye care and the pathways to how a child gets an eye exam. Yeah. Um, so expand on that. What do you mean? Well, for instance, um, you know, for a child to be referred in the state of Ohio for an eye examination, they need to fail a vision screening right, in school. And you better hope that you fail your vision screening in first or third grade right. because in second grade you're just not going to get tested. So at Euler, when we um, were first starting and patient consent was a challenge and getting the papers back from the, from the uh, families, I said to them, okay, don't worry about the kids that fail the screening. Send us, first of all, any child, yep. but really look at those kids that are behavioral problems, Look at those kids that are, um, there's just something that the teacher feels they're not they're learning. They're a smart kid, but they're not doing yeah, it very well. Yeah, and it's, that was, I knew it was going to be bad. Yeah. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. Hmm. Um, the first child that came in, she was labeled a poor reader. She was a first grader, and she was a plus six. Nobody yeah. knew. Second child came in, was a high schooler. Um, she was mad at the world. And um, actually, there was a technician that we were training, and they did a worth four dot test, yeah. and he says, she's seeing five. I'm like, what? No, she's not seeing five. Yeah. You know, surely not the second patient. Well, sure enough, she'd had strabismus surgery as a child, but then was lost to follow-up right. because of all sorts of, of socioeconomic issues. And she knew to get through school, she just looked at the one on the left. Mm. And it just gives you mm. chills. Yeah. Um, a, a, a woman, say, or I'm sorry, a, a second grader, Sadie, um, was... Uh, seen in the clinic, she um, was referred by her reading tutor um, because, you know, her letters were like six inches tall as mm -hmm. she wrote. They would scroll off the page um, when, in fact, really, when she was seen, um, she was also a pretty far advanced hyperope. And not only did her writing improve and her reading improve, but her self-confidence improved, shoulders yeah. back. She became a, a, um, a an advocate for the for the school as well as the clinic and and just you think about yep. how that has changed that woman that young girl's life it's just it's the simple stuff it's that the you little think things, yes. that you think it's just this doesn't exist in the united states right, right? It, 
It does. Yet, like, like, or, or that like it can't exist in the United States, right? There's access to everything, you know, and, and then it does. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. So then, then how, um, how have you been able to help through that clinic with the other states that kind of come in? They look at the model mm-hmm. and they take it back. Uh, have they been successful? Are they hitting roadblocks? Blo- what what sort of things have you seen? Well, there are challenges, and if you talk to any health center, let alone a school-based health center, there's lots of challenges all along the way, and it really is a local determinant, right? There, yeah. You've got to have the people, the stakeholders in that neighborhood in order to make it, in order to make it uh, successful. Um, now, that being said, um, we've had success within the state of Ohio. Um, Parlane, I know that we're going, we're working on now a Columbus um, area um, clinic in the same way. There are some um, school-based health centers up in the northern part of Ohio. And there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. You can also bring the facility to a school, set up for a bit, and still bill through the FQHC model and then move out. Okay. It's less than ideal, but you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, like yeah. I said. So um, the challenge, quite frankly, is you need the stakeholders invested and on message. Actually, the governor of the state of Ohio, um, I served on a committee that he appointed for the health transformation. That was his lofty goal. And it was trying to replicate this and give a toolkit to other communities in Ohio. Is it a, sorry to stop mm-hmm, you, but sure. is it's not just a um, optometric clinic. They also do primary care and dentistry or just now that? they do. So, right. yes. so it started as eye care. It actually started as um, more primary care. But if you think of it from a development point of view, so if you want to deliver primary care, you need a cot, a stethoscope, you know, yeah. a room, right. you know, that guy's right. sink, right? Yeah. Um, if you think about what you need to set up, there's just a lack of knowledge within all of healthcare, let alone school-based healthcare, um, as far as what is needed to run an, or to, to outfit an yeah. optometric clinic. So that's where the OOA and the AOA were really helpful as yeah. far as, yeah, this is what we need, certainly leveraging uh, relationships with our industry partners to get equipment in there. Um, we had uh, significant funding to actually um, salary the employees for the first year as things mm-hmm. were going, um, although it became self-sustaining within yeah. uh, the first eight months. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Then, um, but So there's probably a limitation on somebody doing that as actually a business model. So it, what would be the limitation for... Um, the federally based healthcare systems from just being some some optometrists way that they're that they're actually is there a limitation or they can come into those schools and as, as long as they understand the legalities of what they're doing and what they're signing up for then they could do that they could but to achieve the fqhc designation yeah. is not simple okay so so that's where the heavy lift comes from um who who is the special specialist in understanding how to do that it would seem like, like, so I start look, thinking about like all these students that come out, they've got this student loan debt, they really want to, you know, they want to have these opportunities to, to grow, maybe they don't want to go into commercial practice, maybe they do, whatever, but, right. um, but this w- could seem to be a model that they, if they knew how to do that, or if they had somebody to help them with how mm-hmm. to do that, we can kind of uh, skin a bunch of cats. Yep. And also take care of a bunch of underserved popu- yeah. population. Well, that's where the AOA does come in. Uh-huh. So um, certainly Michael Duenas is our um, uh, you know, public um, 
Oh, gosh, Michael, sorry, I'm going to butcher your title. But no, he certainly he works out of the D.C. office, and he is our uh, he's the champion when it comes to this. He certainly helped us with the Health Center Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and he's and, an OD as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and a policy expert. Yep. Um, he's a wonk. Public health officer. Yep. That's what his title is. I got it. It took me a minute. Um, so um, he understands this kind of stuff. He can talk the language, um, and, and quite frankly, you have to um, it, you have to be federally designated Correct. so he can walk that through and the um, now defunct health center committee it's been absorbed and and um, uh, works in a different capacity in different other committees but that's what we were charged with is actually helping um, get eye care into these um, health centers yep. so there's a crazy statistic that I learned attending one of the um, uh, health center conferences one out of ten Americans receives their health care from a health center one out of 10, yet we have less than 400 FTE, full-time equivalent optometrists in health centers throughout the country. So when you talk about an opportunity for a graduate, especially if you want to practice at the full scope of your licensure, I mean, you're it. Yeah. You're going to be doing everything yeah. from glasses to um, as much as your scope will allow. Um, so then as an AOA member, mm -hmm. I have access to Michael Duanis yes. and his knowledge. Yes. Absolutely. I don't have to have a special project or a special approval no. from the board. No. or No. Um, and Michael, as well as everybody out of the D.C. office, they, they are so incredibly helpful. Totally. Um, call them up. Email them. Um, you'll probably get more information than you ever thought existed because um, they really do their homework and they know how the system works um, and, and can assist. I, I know I had a... I do a lot of work with the um, College of Optometry and one. Not the College of Optometry. No, the. Uh, actually, the. Not the, but State the. University yeah, no, 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 no. This is the <laughs> Ohio State University College of Optometry. I was born and raised in of Columbus. Course, yeah. I, 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 my, fa I, oh, my father um, warmed the bench for Woody Hayes, so it, oh, wow. it literally comes naturally. Wow. Cool. Um, so, anyway. Cool. Sorry. Kind of forgot. Where, oh, yeah. Okay. So, we were talking about um, a student that I actually um, worked with at AOA's Advocacy on the Hill. We were up, I took her around, had an amazing experience with the legislators, got taken under the tunnels and up into the mm, Capitol yep. building. Long story short, she now started a vision clinic out in Washington State. So yeah. it's just um, the involvement within the AOA really spoke to her as far as the community health aspect. Right. And I think as a generation, as we look to the changing population um, of our students and of our practicing optometrists, you know, the one thing that, that I keep hearing is that if there's a purpose, if there's a cause, yep. these these people are all yep, in. Totally right. Yeah, and, and so that really speaks to um, the younger generation. Yeah, so as a as a legislative guy myself, right? Mm -hmm. like, as a I'd political say you are. Uh, <laughs> the, the, um, you know, I, my gut reaction is to always say, let's figure out a way to pass legislation, right? But, but what you're doing is actually, you know, what this model does is that instead of, you know, mandating some of these mm -hmm. things, which still is not, I'm not saying that we don't go after those oh, aspects. Absolutely. And I know you're not saying that either, nope. but it's basically creating a groundswell of access to that type of care where, mm -hmm. um, and when you do it that way, people are just very inclined to say, yeah, of course, why wouldn't we do this, right? Why wouldn't we want to have these kids How being able to see How have we not done this exactly. before? Why is it the case that yeah. kids can go see the, should, or seeing the dentist when they have one tooth and, <laughs> and, they're, you know, and they're, learning to, they're learning when they can't even see sure. or we can't know if they can see? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. So, so you can, I mean, we can continue on with some of your other story, but I, I mean, that's the that's whole a good idea. Run. Well, I said yeah. it was my capstone experience, and, yeah. and I think you understand why, um, because 
um, you get passionate about talking about what our profession can do and how optometry can change lives. Yep. And this was a literal petri dish that you could watch it happen in real time. Um, I've had a couple master's candidate students out of Ohio State do research on the data. Yeah. Um, it's What's just, it showing? Well, it's challenging. You know, one of the things one of the uh, students wanted to study was um, the impact, especially with children with IEPs or individualized education plans. Um, and so, it, to, so to give a little bit of perspective on yes. IEPs, we see that from a legislative standpoint Absolutely. often. But um, kind of go over an IEP really quickly sure. for the listeners who... Sure. Well, in Ohio, it's kind of interesting, too, because we have a visual component to that. We did pass legislation. Um, so an IEP, or an Individualized Education Plan, is when a student is identified as needing some type of special services. And it could be, um, gosh, it could be something like they need to be sat closer to the board. Right. They need to have extra time to take a test. They might have mobility issues. You know, there's a whole host of, and it's very well defined as far as what qualifies. Absolutely. To is. Yes. It, well, it's very expensive. Yeah. And um, there's real good research out of Ohio State that shows that the increased prevalence of visual disorders in that population. So the legislation that we worked to get in Ohio was we tried for the comprehensive eye exam. Right. We tried and got a lot of pushback. It's a pretty red state these days, but um, as far as mandates, so the healthcare yep. mandates aren't going to fly. That being said, um, we did get legislation that when a child is referred for an IEP, so basically they've identified a child, we need to put together a treatment plan for them, they need to have an eye exam within um, the next, I think it's uh, next 90 days, yeah. or have had one six months prior. Yeah. Um, and we're so we wanted to take a look at those students with IEPs that once we get them their glasses, how does that impact their academic performance? Well. There's troubles with that. And if right. anybody that has students right now and you hear about testing, you know, are, are you going to base the outcomes on some of these standardized tests? That's challenging. Also, what we realized is IEPs, you could have an IEP because you have, like I said, a mobility problem. Right. Well, the classes probably aren't going to be paramount in right. fixing that. Right. So, um, but really interesting um, data coming out. I, we'd love to try to publish some of it, but we need to work a little bit more on on uh, the size of the sample. Yeah, because when you when you don't when when an IEP is so broad, you've yes. got to make sure that you're um, asking the right questions mm -hmm. and including the right you know things. Otherwise, your you know yeah. your answer is not going to be as right. specific as you. Right, and we're real um, understanding of HIPAA, but education has something called FERPA, and don't ask me the acronym, but it's basically huh. you know they have to protect the students' privacy with right. respect to academic performance. So there's a lot of it's not as simple as I hope, but hey, there's good people down there working on it, so yeah. I'm not worried. Yeah, so then, okay, um, yeah, I think that what, what's very interesting to me about that is that I don't think people really understand all that stuff that goes on. And, I mean, I certainly don't, and um, or I didn't, and I also didn't understand that that's part of what Michael, do. I mean, we use Michael from an SGRC standpoint, sure. we use him a lot, but, um, but the fact that, you know, when I think about value for, for anybody, that could come in right away. You know, I, I want to read you something because I was going to ask sure. you this, but you basically answered this. So this is from, I don't know if how much attention you, you pay to like social media. I tend not to pay much. but I try not to, but unfortunately yeah. it, it's everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, there was a, um, a post that somebody had um, put up and essentially the post was um, uh, AOA membership worth it, yes or no? And, and then, I don't know if you saw this and they, okay. and they, um, 
and they said, you know, they're quoting the cost of it. And um, so, I mean, there was, you know, there were probably 50-50, you know, the big thing that a lot of people, um, it's amazing to me, I was involved in the process with board certification, mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, so that was a big one that people kind of kept citing, mm -hmm. but there was, but like, there was no real, the reality is, is if, if you hadn't, if we hadn't gone forward with board certification and it wound up being what we thought it was going to be with, um, with payers really valuing that at a high level, mm -hmm. then the same people would be upset. Yeah. And the fact that it, it hasn't turned into something that's required, mm -hmm. right? Or even de facto required. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, did that tear you away? Did that make these people that didn't get board certified, did that make them lesser of a doctor? or right. any, like they, they just now have a process they can go through if they choose to or if they need to in the future, or they uh, don't, yep. right? But it didn't, it didn't really like, in the, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't cost them a lot of money. Yep. It didn't make them uh, seem like less of a doctor, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to read you this, and I'll, I'll leave her name out of it, but uh, I, I keep reading this over and over and over again, and I just think, what what the heck? Um, so she she says, um, sorry about that. I'll I'll get back to. It. She says. So so she so somebody points out earning potential for, um, and you may yeah you may have seen this, but points out earning potential for what optometrists can do, and and she says what earning potential? The reimbursement from vision plans is atrocious. And sadly necessary in my neck of the woods. I have seen my patient volume increase and my profits shrink. I make less and do more. If the AOA really wanted to do something for us, they would go after the vision plan. Dentists did it right. We failed. My dentist takes no insurance and still is able to get partial reimbursement and sometimes full for what they provide and still balance bill. We take pennies or lose the patient entirely. In um, Pennsylvania, about 85% of the people are covered under a vision plan of some sort. I can't live with it anymore. And then she goes on to say, I mean, what's really sad to me is that, you know, she goes on to say just, uh, you know, how much she made um, the year before and, you know, how she's, I mean, I just, I thought, what's your, what would be your response to that, to, to her if you had yeah. to say that? Well, there's so much to unpack there. Yep. Um, so I've served two, three years um, on the AOA's third party executive committee. And um, the joke too, living in Cincinnati, I can see one of the major vision plans from my front porch. Not technically, but I try to pretend <laughs> like that, that's my, my joke. So um, certainly, um, and, and especially in the multidisciplinary practice that I worked, I would say 50 to 60% of the patients that I saw, maybe even as high as 70, were medical visits. Right. But they come in with their card and they expect to use it. Um, and I have been in discussions at the highest level of said, well, Luxottica and IMED, yeah. right? So I've been in discussions with their leadership and hearing things like, well, you know, these patients have paid for this, so they deserve to use it. I'm like, that's, that's not how any of this right. works. So I, there's an interesting article that was um, actually just in the Academy's um, journal that just came out that, you know, medical optometry the the it says no longer an option i think what the better headline would have been would medical optometry no longer optional right you have to move into the medical arena yeah. um there is so much coming at us right now when it comes to how we practice 
Um, and it's not all bad, right? If yeah, you think about, if I think about what was in my exam lane, you know, 25 years ago versus what's in there now, oh my gosh, I could never practice without some of the things cool. that are there. Yeah, so technology absolutely. is not inherently evil. Um, I, one of uh, the, my favorite stories when I talk about changing to the medical model and people getting nervous and all the disruptors, um, you know, people think that the inventor of the, of the car yeah. was Henry Ford, right? right? Um, it wasn't. It was actually Mr. Daimler of Daimler Chrysler, right. and he developed it actually 22 years earlier. Yep. And I said this um, in my nominating speech or my candidate speech from uh, in the House of Delegates. Daimler didn't do the automobile because he didn't think that there were enough chauffeurs to drive people right. around, right. right? You know, and it wasn't until Henry Ford realized what this could do um, that you know it became the transformative force. So. I think um, as an individual clinician like she is, you've got to look at what you're doing. And if vision plans don't allow you to be um, sustainable, you've got to you've got to get out of them, totally right? right? And it's it's and I I get the piece, and because I know living in Cincinnati, the the um, prevalence and and the uh, the amount of patients that are on vision plans, but vision plans are quite frankly for vision exams. Correct. Um, and so, and they'll tell you that absolutely. Even though they're trying to, they confuse. So here's the, here's yes. what I see is that um, some people, and I'm not saying this is what she's confused on. I don't know, but I think some people get confused with the fact that vision plans now will also ask about things like diabetes and hypertension. Right. They'll also have potential for screeners right. that you know for like a, a fundus photo screener that they may reimburse for. Or they may even have like these other carve outs for reimbursement of kind of like this medical quasi medical stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's confusing to a lot of docs who who don't really they sort of dabble mm -hmm. like they have all the acumen to take care of patients well, mm -hmm. but they don't understand the value of those services and really how to just simply talk to a patient about the difference between their vision plan right. and their medical plan. Right. And then, so then it's even just exponentially um, confusing to them. Right. Right. It is confusing. And unfortunately, um, in Vision Plan's business model, it's marketing to employers and it's being sold to employers that, that you know, hey, we can see the diabetic care through this Vision Plan. Um, so a lot of it's education um, from the airways perspective at these high levels with the third-party payers. We keep taking the message to them. Whether yeah. or not they listen yeah. is different. But what it really boils down to is you have to look at your business model and understand, and this goes for vision plans, yeah. this goes for any health insurance plan, is taking, is your chair time, if you do the math, is it going to make sense for you to take that that insurance plan? Right. And if it is, take it. If it's not, get out. Yep. Um, we don't want to race to the bottom. Right. We want to value our services. We don't want to give away our services. Um, but it, it takes the strength of the individual doctor to look at their contracts. And if it, that's not going to work, you need to figure out another that's way. Right. That's right. Yep. I mean, I think so. So, and I think the other thing is that I mean, there's two ways to, there's, there's multiple ways to, to do this, but, um, but I've thought about it a lot. I think, and, I, and I've, I've kind of thought, you know, if, if this doctor would listen, I guarantee, and yep. I, you know, I could come into your practice yep. right now and I could show you exactly how to do it in a way, if you wanted to, right? Yeah. You know, and that's not me being arrogant. I know there's a bunch of other people that could do it. You could yep. do it. Yep. Um, is just that um, I come in and show you, like, this is how you t you yep. manage that situation. You yep. don't even have to drop all those vision You plans, don't. Right? And, and quite frankly, they might 
perform a valuable service totally right. in your practice. Totally right. Um, but it's individualized, and you just because you know a major employer has that vision coverage doesn't mean you have to take it. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't mean that you have to stop there either, because if you're right. using if that vision plan is bringing the patient in. And, right. and they have other diseases. Right. They're not just, and, and right. what I think winds up happening, and I, I say this all across the country every time I talk, but when you look at MBA metrics, when you actually look at the data um, of where, and, and, and this is just for independent practices, but where they're deriving the, the general source of their revenue still in 2018 mm -hmm. is 83% yep. of, of that revenue is being derived from the routine, routine examinations and the sale of glasses and contact lenses. Yep. Only seven percent is derived from medical care, and, and and for many of us, that's completely flipped. And I'm not saying don't. I, mean, I still think we can do a, the best job Absolutely. of all that other stuff. But um, but if you if you don't understand that, and you don't understand like what 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 I think happens is they think if I see this routine patient and I sell them glasses, this is what I make. And if I can see this many of those patients over time, then I'm I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that type of thinking means that you're ignoring, if you don't understand the value of managing dry eye, managing glaucoma, managing mm -hmm. macular degeneration, doing scleral lenses, orthokeratology, blah, 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 right? All this other stuff that is, has this wonderful access in our profession that we uniquely care about, right. that nobody else even can compete with us, right? right? Not even ophthalmology can yep. compete with us on that. They don't want because to Because they don't either. care, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and even if they did care, they're not as good at it as we are. Correct. So, so um, so the, the bottom line is we can do all this stuff yeah. that generates these huge, like you talk about chair costs, I like to think about revenue per OD hour, sure. and it's all in services. Mm -hmm. And so like, okay, well, yeah, I, may, I might see four of these patients in that amount of time, but I can see um, in that same four patients, I can do this one thing and make three to, or four times what those four patients would have generated. Mm -hmm. But I can only have access to that if I have, if I'm, if I'm actually following through with some of that Sure. That care I know how to do. Sure. Absolutely. And so, um, so you have to get them outside of thinking like this patient, this routine plan. Yes. I sell them this. This patient, this routine plan. I sell them this, and that's where it's extra work. Yeah. Well, if you you know you talk about social media for when you see that it, it does break your heart. But yeah. if you scroll through a lot of the social media, you you think you hear people evaluating their business model, looking at a particular type of insurance, and say, hey, I dropped that, and I've working so totally. i'm working less and yep. making more yep. so um but it, it, it takes some courage to do that and quite frankly that's where affiliation helps yes. that's why we yes. just sat here through yep. third party yep. um sgrc tpc you need that's the purpose of, of of the aoa that's the return on investment yeah and that's the piece it's out there um that's the part that i like to um, make sure is communicated i really like the membership to understand the, why are we paying for this? Yep. What do we get? The example I always use about that. So in Ohio, when I was president-elect, we realized we had some major legislative lifts that we needed to have. We didn't have the war chest that we needed. And unfortunately, we said, you know what, we're going to have to make a special assessment. And over two years, we assessed each member roughly $1,000. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of angst. And yeah. you're sitting on that board, and what is this going to do? We're lucky in Ohio. We have roughly 70% membership. Yeah. But we're like, what is this going to do? This is, and so as president-elect, I, I made a statement. I said, hey, we're not going to lose a member over this. Yep. Okay. And I went around to all 12 of our zones, and we had um, discussions about this. And during this time, during that two-year assessment, we actually grew membership. Yeah. 
And we just came off of, and, and you heard our executive director today, we just came off two big legislative wins. We repealed sales tax on ophthalmic goods in the state of Ohio. We were one of eight yeah. states that still had that. And also um, our version of the DOC Access Bill or the Vision Care Services Act. So um, that's the return on investment. And if you get that messaging out and if you can talk to the yeah. people um, on social media and if you can talk to your community members that, 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 that practice near you, that's why we're part of this. Yeah. One of my other favorite quotes that I've just learned a couple of years ago um, is a African proverb, and it's you know if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Amen. Right. And that's that's what the AOA is. That's why we're all part of this. That's why we're doing this. That's the return on investment. It's sometimes hard to message that out, but boy, once you see it in action, you get it. And that's why we were all here at this meeting here um, in Dallas. And hopefully everybody's going to go home and kind of spread that that kind of fire that you get at meetings like this. So those, I, and I, I have a feeling um, everybody reads those. I, I, I'm hoping the state association reaches out to her. And um, first of all, if she's a member, get her yeah. some services. And if she's not, to explain to her why she needs to be. Yeah, yeah I hope so too. Well, that's a great way to end this. I think um, thanks thanks a lot for being on and taking your time. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Uh, I learned a lot, and um, and we'll do it again. Sounds good. Appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, thanks. for taking the message around. You're welcome. All right, welcome. take care.